0: science you can use the dr joe show on cjad 800 there's antimony arsenic aluminum selenium and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and rhenium and nickel neodymium neptunium germanium and iron americium ruthenium uranium europium zirconium lutetium, vanadium and lanthanum and osmium and astatine and radium and gold protectinium and indium and gallium and iodine and thorium and thulium and thallium
1: well welcome aboard and uh, happy rosh hashanah to all our jewish listeners because this is the Jewish new year. And uh, the year, I think is uh, 5783, which is quite a bit different from the uh, so-called uh, Christian era uh, calendar. And uh, I, I think this dates back to the supposed Adam and Eve story. I think it was uh, Moses Maimonides, the famed uh, Jewish philosopher in the 12th century who uh, somehow calculated when the earth began uh, i think it was by looking at the uh, uh the tanakh which is the the jewish bible and uh looking at all the begats and begats and begats, and uh, went back and uh, figured out when the earth must have begun. Anyway, uh, it's just symbolic, of course, but it is the year 5783, and uh, Happy New Year. And traditionally, you take an apple and you dip it into honey uh, to uh, signify that it is going to be a good year. Also, it is traditional in the Jewish holiday of Rosh Hashanah to blow the shofar, which is uh, uh, made uh, out of a uh, the horn of an animal. Uh, it can be sheep horn, I suppose it can be a bullhorn uh, as well. And uh, it's essentially a musical instrument. and uh, it it calls attention to the fact that, uh, that we should think about who we are and what we have done and where we are going. It's just sort of an interesting tradition. And I don't think it's such an easy thing to blow the shofar. I've never tried, but I I know that they sometimes uh, struggle um, with it. Uh, Interestingly enough, there are two countries where Rosh Shana is a national holiday. And uh, Israel obviously is one of them. You know what the other one is, is the Ukraine. Uh, In uh, 2022, uh, President Zelensky, who uh, has a Jewish background, uh, decided that Rosh Hashanah would be a national holiday in Ukraine. Very interesting. All right, uh, this this morning on the uh, trivia show, I asked a question about uh, why it is customary for a gentleman to walk on the outside when escorting a lady on the sidewalk. Uh, I think uh, most people still abide by that. I I think uh, I do, anyway. You know what, it's all a matter of physics and chamber pots. Before the advent of plumbing, it was common for chamber pots to be emptied from upper story windows into gutters beside the sidewalk. The trajectory of the contents made strolling hazardous for anyone near the gutter, that is, on the outside of the sidewalk. Gallant gentlemen therefore took to walking on the outside to prevent any catastrophe from befalling the ladies. Today, we are reviled by the thoughts of disposing of waste in this fashion, but cleanliness really did not become a virtue until recent times. When Queen Victoria, ascended the throne in 1837. Believe it or not, Buckingham Palace had no baths at all. Perfumes, on the other hand, were very popular since they would mask objectionable smells. Madame de Pompadour spent vast amounts on perfumes, and Madame Du Barry supposedly hid scented pads all about her person when she attempted to seduce King Louis XIV but not everyone minded a ripe body aroma. Samuel Johnson, the creator of the first English dictionary apparently did not. When an outspoken lady friend told him that he smelled rather gamey, Johnson took no offense. He did however object to the misuse of verbs in her comment. You smell, he corrected her, I stink. Well, today, of course, we have a very different look on all of this, and uh, we constantly wash and use soap, And uh, but of course, uh, perfumes are still very popular. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. And uh, for those of you who are here for the first time, I'm Joe Schwartz, I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society, where we have a mandate of separating sense from nonsense, myth from fact. And uh, we've been uh, doing this for many years. Our office was founded about um, 24 years ago. And obviously, we've had a lot of challenges those years, uh, trying to separate all the sense from the nonsense. And uh, just about every day, there is something that we have to pay attention to. Uh, this week, you may have seen stories about various kind of beverages being recalled because of their caffeine content. And uh, we first heard about this story a few weeks ago when a beverage called Prime, uh, which uh, is very widely promoted, especially to uh, young children, which is another issue, uh, because this uh, beverage, so-called energy beverage, contains caffeine. And the prime beverage uh, was recalled because it contained 200 milligrams of caffeine, whereas the maximum allowed in Canada per beverage is 180 milligrams. And uh, that made for an interesting story at at that time, uh, especially because in the US, this was not a problem. And uh, people were importing the American version to get their caffeine intake uh, here. But now a number of other beverages, uh, uh, all of these in the energy category have been recalled because they contain more than 180 milligrams of caffeine. And uh, they are made mostly for the American market, but they have made their way into, into Canada and Canada does not allow it. We have regulations. Uh, For example, the label has to be bilingual, and you cannot have more than 180 milligrams of of caffeine. However, you can certainly increase your intake of caffeine in other ways, obviously by drinking more coffee, but believe it or not, you can buy this five-hour energy drink, uh, which comes in a very, very small container, a very small bottle, and it contains 200 milligrams of caffeine, Some of them contain more. But this is not regulated as a food or as a beverage. It's regulated as a natural health product. And that falls under different category of regulations. And so we have this rather confusing situation where you are not allowed to sell a beverage in a bottle or in a can that contains more than 180 milligrams of caffeine but you can buy this small container, and one gulp of it will give you more than 200 milligrams of caffeine. Never mind the fact that you can also go online or into a pharmacy and buy caffeine pills. There's a plethora of caffeine pills out there, uh, 200 milligram pills. And of course, nobody says how many of these you, you can take. And believe it or not, those pills have an NPN number on them a natural product number, which means that they are approved in Canada. Of course, uh, to get an NPN number, uh, you do not have to prove that uh, this is effective. Uh, for any kind of condition. Uh, You can just provide some anecdotal evidence. But of course, in the case of caffeine, I mean, we know what it does, it's a stimulant, certainly it will keep you awake. And uh, students sometimes take it, uh, if they want to be alert for studying or on on an exam. And people take it also when they feel uh, drowsy. And There's no uh, issue with that. In fact, it is promoted as a natural product. And uh, it is natural because caffeine, of course, comes from a plant source. So we have this rather confusing situation where you can't sell a beverage that contains more than 180 milligrams of caffeine, but you can go and buy caffeine pills or you can get yourself the five-hour energy boost Uh, and uh, that is regulated in a completely different way. A very silly and uh, confusing situation. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll take a break, check what traffic is like out there, and we will be uh, right back.
0: Life's Everyday Mysteries solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. This past summer,
1: Uh, There were two really uh, popular movies. One of them, of course, was Oppenheimer, and the other one was Barbie. Uh, I actually did go to see it, and uh, I found it better than I thought it would be, uh, especially when you know some of the backstory of how this doll was created. Uh, by uh, Ruth Handler uh, way back in uh, 1958 when she was traveling through Europe and she saw a German doll that uh, had uh, the shape of an adult person because in North America at that time dolls were you know in the shape of little babies and she thought that this would be a, a great idea but uh, boy there are some really interesting um, stories about Barbie, poor Barbie. I mean, children love her, but grown-ups just don't seem to want to leave her alone. She's been accused of all sorts of things. Uh, researchers at University Central Hospital in Helsinki claimed that Barbie may be affecting the health of children. They took her measurements and concluded that her thighs, hips, and stomach were too skinny. She would not have the 20% fat a woman needs to have regular periods. If girls try to emulate the doll's measurements, they may be candidates for anorexia, that's what the researchers claimed. Well, you know, there may be something to that because it it gives an image of what an ideal body should be like and very few people can achieve that 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 image. <clears throat> Actually, Barbie was the the toy industry's first full-figure doll when she uh, first appeared in in 1959. Uh, she was named after a real-life Barbie. That was Barbie Handler, the daughter of Ruth Handler, founder of the Mattel Toy Company. Uh, the company was founded before Barbie. It was founded in 1945 with her her husband. And uh, uh, once uh, Barbie was out and she became immensely popular, uh, Ken appeared, named after the Handler's son, Ken. and. Uh, she, He joined Barbie in 1961. Both became very popular, um, sometimes generating truly bizarre ideas. Uh, None more bizarre than that of a woman called Barbara in San Alamo, California. Well, well, where else would you see something like this? This uh, woman used to publish a new age newsletter called the Barbie Channeling Newsletter. I channel Barbie, she says the archetypal feminine plastic essence who embodies that stereotypical wisdom of the 60s and 70s. Since childhood, I have been gifted with an intensely personal, growth-oriented relationship with Barbie, the polyethylene essence, who is 700 million teaching essences. What on earth does that mean? Her influence has transformed and guided many of my peers through pre-puberty to fully realize maturity. Her truths are too important to be pre-packaged. My sincere hope is to let the voice of Barbie, my inner name twin come through. Barbie's messages are offered in love, she says. Well, I won't dwell upon uh, Uh, Barbara's communicating with a piece of plastic, but I will mention that she didn't get her chemistry right. The original Barbies were made not of polyethylene, but polyvinyl chloride, or PVC. This plastic became available commercially in 1942 and formed the basis of a whole slew of vinyl products. Now, the problem with PVC is that it is extremely brittle, and in order to impart flexibility to it, it has to be mixed with a plasticizer, which can make up as much as 70% of the total weight. Plasticizers, such as dibutyl phthalate, were commonly used to separate the long polymer chains of PVC, allowing these to slide over one another, and that imparts flexibility. Unfortunately, over time, the plasticizer leaches out, and forms a sticky coating on the plastic. There's a health concern about this because such plasticizers have been linked with estrogenic effects, which may have an impact on children who handle or worse place old dolls in their mouths. There's also a problem for doll collectors and museums because as the plasticizer leaches out, the plastic begins to crack and degrade. As PVC breaks down, it releases hydrochloric acid which then further speeds up the degradation. So what do you do about this? Well, light and heat are poisons for old PVC dolls. So placing them in a fridge is a possible solution. It also helps to eliminate the hydrochloric acid as soon as it forms. This can be done by placing containers of a molecular sieve, such as uh, Type 4A zeolite in a display case. What are zeolites? They're calcium and aluminum silicates, which have been heated to drive off any water. And that process opens up spaces in the silicate structure into which molecules such as hydrogen chloride can pass and become entrapped. Well, such problems had not been apparent in 1976 when Barbie dolls were sealed inside a time capsule to commemorate the United States Bicentenary. The capsule is gonna be opened in 2076, so people can then reflect on the social memorabilia of the 1900s as they celebrate the tricentenary. Since the dolls will have been kept in the dark, they will likely be in decent shape, although they will have lost some weight due to the loss of plasticizer. Too bad, of course, because, uh, you know, one thing Barbie cannot afford to do is lose any more weight anyway back to the back to the uh, the movie uh, I think it was actually a pretty good historical account of um, of the history of, of, of Barbie done in a rather clever way and uh, Ruth Handler uh, appeared in the movie r- r- played by Rhea Perlman who of course uh, rose to fame in in, in cheers and uh, and <clears throat> They even mention some of the problems that uh, the real-life Ruth Handler had because uh, she had some issues with income tax, uh, income tax fraud. uh, And, in fact, uh, she had to leave the company in 1975 because of that. She also had to pay a fine. I think it was uh, $57,000. She... uh, you know, not everything was stellar in in her uh, career. Uh, there were a lot of unfortunate incidents in her life as well. Her son Ken, uh, as I said, after whom the doll was named, died, uh, and uh, he I think died of HIV, which was uh, obviously uh, very tragic uh, then. Uh, The company, of course, is still around today, and they're producing uh, the dolls. I'm sure the movie will increase the sales. And uh, if uh, you haven't seen the exhibit at the Centre Montréal here in Montreal, you should try to go and see that, although I think it's a temporary close because they're refurbishing it. But uh, they have just an amazing display of the Barbie dolls. And all kinds of costumes, and uh, some of them uh, really are, are just amazing uh, in terms of the you know the detail that uh, uh, that the costumes have. Uh, in the movie, they also told the story of of uh, Jack Ryan who was uh, a partner in Mattel uh, right from from the beginning. And he actually had an engineering background and he was the one who designed the doll so that it could be flexible. Because as you know, you can bend Barbie's uh, elbows and bend her knees. And he claimed that he had not been given enough credit for. having been really the inventor of the barbie doll in terms of of you know its technical uh, nature but he was a very very bizarre character he was married five times uh, one of them was to joja gabor and uh, uh, he lived a lavish lifestyle he built himself a castle in in uh, in los angeles he had uh, all kinds of parties with drugs, alcohol, and and women—not exactly the best image for uh, Barbie. Uh, anyway, that's the Barbie story. I i think the movie was interesting; it's worthwhile uh, seeing. But read a bit about the history first before you go and um, and see it. Uh, so it's entertaining, but there is sort of a you know tragic undercurrent to uh, the whole uh, story. You're listening to Dr. Joe Show. We'll see what is happening in the world. We'll check in with CTV News, and we will be right back.
0: Science, you can use the Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. A large crowd surrounded Hal the Healer's
1: platform in the middle 1800s. Before beginning, Hal signaled his band to strike up a lively tune. Why? Because Hal was preparing to pull a tooth, and the music was needed to drown out the screams of the unfortunate patient. In the early 19th century, the pulling of teeth was a common public attraction. Everyday life was pretty dreary, and watching someone else suffer provided a distraction. Dentists became public entertainers of the sort, vying with each other for business. The more flamboyant the performance, the bigger the crowd, and the greater the chance for more, uh, Vic, Vic, no, let's, let's call them patients. How the healer used music to drown out the muffled screams of the patient. Why muffled? Because Hal's advanced technique was based on pulling the tooth with his right hand while choking off the windpipe with his left. Diamond Kit, who performed adorned with jewelry, used a different procedure. He claimed to have an effective pain reliever that he would administer before the extraction. And administer he did. The pain reliever was swabbed over the mouth, the tooth was yanked, and not a peep was heard. But that had nothing to do with Kit's pain reliever. It had everything to do with the large wad of cotton he stuffed into the patient's mouth after performing the extraction. Dr. Jean St-Pierre, who performed his dental artistry with a traveling medicine show, had a different twist. Not only did he pull in customers with his tooth-pulling performance, He even offered to treat members of the troupe for free, at least until the owner of the show noticed that his performers were giving subpar performances and seemed to be continuously dazed. When he had to have his own molar extracted, he discovered the reason. Dr. St-Pierre gave him some pills to take. The pills contained a hefty dose of opium. It seems St-Pierre was making a little income on the side supplying the performers with the opium to which they had been introduced by the painless dentistry. Well, today, uh, if you have to have a tooth pulled, which is becoming more rare, because of course, dentists now are so good at saving teeth, but uh, if you do have to have some dental work done, then of course, uh, local anesthetics are injected, things like Novocaine and, and Lidocaine, and you really do have painless dentistry. I mean, dentistry has come a very, very long way. But uh, Novocaine was not the first drug that that actually allowed dentistry to be uh, painless. Uh, That was uh, nitrous oxide or laughing gas. Uh, Laughing gas was uh, first popularized by the brilliant English chemist Humphrey Davy in the early 1800s. And he was not the one actually who first made laughing gas. That honor goes to Joseph Priestley. Uh, Priestley very often is regarded as the discoverer of oxygen, uh, which is not exactly uh, correct. I mean, he was the first one to uh, uh, notice that, uh uh, you could heat some chemicals like uh, potassium chlorate that would give off a, a, a gas, but he really didn't recognize that as an element as, as oxygen. <clears throat> but anyway, uh, Humphrey Davy uh, certainly recognized nitrous oxide as a very interesting gas produced by heating ammonium nitrate, actually. And <clears throat> when he inhaled it, he noticed that he got all giddy and he even uh, noticed that uh, uh, it could alleviate pain. And there were all kinds of demonstrations using nitrous oxide in the 1800s. In fact, it was featured as as entertainment. In the music halls of the day, uh, when you'd you'd have singers and dancers, well, you'd also have uh, nitrous oxide being used as a form of entertainment. Uh, Members of the audience could come up on stage, inhale some nitrous oxide, and then to the merriment of the audience, they would sort of covert around on stage all giddy from having inhaled the the, the nitrous oxide and then of course in uh, 1846 along came ether uh, which was a, a huge discovery and uh, uh, of course it was used not only in dentistry it was also used in, in surgery and uh, that was really the beginning of uh, Painless uh, dentistry, but as you can see, there's a lot of interesting um, uh, history there. Um, the uh, technology that dentists use today is, is is phenomenal. I mean, not only in terms of being able to alleviate pain, but uh, the fillings that are done now last a very long time, and of course, the technology that is um, involved in a dental implant is. Uh, is absolutely phenomenal so there's a little bit of a throwback historical throwback to the dentistry uh, i like uh, uh, history of course because it teaches us a lot about what we do today and gives us a glimpse into the future uh, uh, let me tell you another interesting little uh, story uh, about peanut butter historically Now, I did not grow up with peanut butter uh, when I was young. It was just not a part of culture in Hungary. Uh, Goose liver on bread was the traditional snack. Uh, Peanut butter has been around in some form since the late 1800s, but there's some controversy about who invented it. Uh, What we know is that George Washington Carver, who's often credited, did not invent peanut butter, although he did promote numerous uses for peanuts. One can make a strong case for peanut butter being a Canadian invention, more specifically, a Montreal invention. In 1884, Montreal chemist Marcellus Gilmore Edson received a US patent for milling roasted peanuts, quote, until they reached a semi-fluid state with consistency like that of butter. But his intended use for was for confectionery products. It was Dr. John Harvey Kellogg of cereal fame who introduced a paste that could be called peanut butter. In an 1895 patent, he described mashing boiled peanuts into a paste uh, that was supposed to be a healthy alternative to meat, which he thought was a digestive irritant and a sinful sexual stimulant. Then in 1921, Joseph Rosenfeld solved the problem of oil separating from the peanut solids by introducing the process of hydrogenation. This resulted in a stable spread that could be shipped and stored for a long time. As far as nutrition goes, peanut butter is a good source of protein and fiber, and the fat in peanut butter is mostly the unsaturated variety that is not implicated in cholesterol buildup in arteries. Unless, of course, you are having some that shows that it has hydrogenated peanut oil because then it will contain trans fats and saturated fats. Anyway, uh, I I have now grown somewhat, you know, accustomed to peanut butter. Uh, I've tried uh, several types. Uh, I like the one that contains nothing but roasted and crushed peanuts. There's no sugar, no added vegetable oils. And uh, I do smear it on whole grain bread. And I've kind of, you know, grown uh, accustomed to to the taste, uh, even though I did not grow up with it. Uh, it I, I still would not rank it as uh, one of my, you know, favorite foods. But at least I've learn to to <laughs> I, I guess more than just tolerate peanut butter I, I think good peanut butter and a nice piece of toast is is, is fine but i tell you one thing that i <clears throat> i've not been able to <clears throat> make peace with and that is bananas on peanut butter uh that's just something that that uh, uh i can't get my mind <laughs> around uh just uh doesn't seem to be a good combo in, in my mind bananas and peanut butter but i know that a lot of people actually actually like it <clears throat> excuse me and and uh, when my kids were small uh, they would eat uh, peanut butter and bananas but uh, i was never inclined to uh, to try that uh, i guess uh, you, know, uh, you need to grow up with that to regard it as uh, somewhat of a delicacy. Anyway, uh, it is once again, time to check traffic. Uh, You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. Uh, Let's see what is happening on the roads out there and we'll be right back.
0: Your source when you need answers, the Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Hey, remember the story about a gene from Arctic
1: flounder being added to the DNA of tomatoes? The gene in question was one that codes for an antifreeze protein. And the idea was that incorporating this gene into the genome of a tomato would prevent the tomato from freezing should the temperature drop below freezing as it sometimes does in southern climes where tomatoes are grown. A clever idea, but it was never put into practice. Nevertheless anti GMO advocates used that story to frighten people about eating the fishy tomatoes. There were cartoons of all kinds that you know that depicted uh, tomatoes that looked like fish uh, which of course is total nonsense because all that was talked about was putting one gene from the 30,000 or so genes of a fish into a tomato, and it's not the gene that makes a fish a fish. The gene just coded for the production of a certain protein. Anyway, that, never mind that. But now, however, we have a real example of an animal gene being inserted into a plant. The gene comes not from a fish, but from a pig, and it has been inserted not into a tomato, but into a soybean. Mulek, M-O-O-L-E-C a company in, uh, in Britain, has isolated some pig genes and inserted them into the genome of a soybean with the result that when the transgenic soybeans are grown, about a quarter of the protein they produce are porcine proteins. Well, the company does not identify the specific genes that were transferred, claiming that information is proprietary. But given that the soybeans have a pinkish color, it is likely that one of the genes codes for myoglobin, a protein that transports oxygen by binding it to an iron atom. Myoglobin is indeed pink. So of course, you're asking yourself the question, what's the point of incorporating a pig protein into soybeans? Well, the argument is that as the world's population increases, the demand for dietary protein from animals will increase. But animal agriculture is not an environmentally friendly enterprise. Growing soybeans has a much smaller environmental footprint and the proteins extracted from the beans can then be added to animal free foods to boost protein content and provide a meaty flavor. Interestingly, Mulag does not make a secret of the piggy genes in their soybeans, quite the opposite. They have coined the name piggy soy for their genetically engineered soybeans. Public acceptance will undoubtedly uh, have something to say about uh, about this, Uh, because of course, uh, there is the the cloud of genetic engineering hanging uh, over this uh, whole uh, business. Uh, Public acceptance, I, I think, will be an issue, but the target for these soybeans is not the Western world but developing countries that are likely to be impacted by a protein shortage. Mulek is not the only company experimenting with inserting animal genes into plants. Polo Po, an Israeli firm, has inserted a chicken gene that codes for ovalbumin, the main protein found in egg white, into the genome of a potato. Once extracted from the potato, it can replace egg protein which is uh, widely used in products that range from ice cream and pancakes to dietary protein supplements. And of course, there's no need to worry about being turned into a pig or into a chicken by consuming the animal proteins produced in the soybeans or potatoes. But uh, I'm pretty sure that cartoonists will seize upon this opportunity and, and you know poke fun at this, just as they did with the, uh, the fishy uh, tomatoes but i uh, i think uh, you know there, there is a greater acceptance now for genetically modified products because we already have a long history uh genetically modified foods have been in our diet now for about 40 years and of course no catastrophe has has arisen and uh uh the issues that you know you hear about that originally were such uh, you know monumental concerns that, that uh, there would be some some unknown toxins that would form in genetic modified foods. Well, none of that has happened. Uh, it doesn't mean that the anti-gmo movement has died away no they're uh they're still out there mostly targeting glyphosate which is the wheat killer that is used on genetically modified uh, canola and soybeans and and uh, corn uh, because those crops have been genetically engineered to resist that uh, wheat killer uh and uh, you know they, they claim that uh, glyphosate is toxic and that it's uh, labeled as a possible human carcinogen by the International Agency for Research on Cancer. Well, that much is true. But what people don't know is that the International Agency for Research on Cancer, which is certainly a reputable organization, it's an arm of the World Health Organization, does its uh, evaluations based upon hazard, not upon risk. And that is a huge difference. Now, I know that I've talked about this before, and I will talk about it again, because it is a very, very important distinction. Hazard is not the same as risk. Hazard is the innate property of a substance, of a process to do harm. It cannot be changed. Cannot be changed. Uh, Whereas risk certainly is modifiable, because it depends on the extent of exposure to a hazardous uh, substance. So for example, uh, let's take something that we talked about a bit earlier today is caffeine. Well, caffeine is a hazardous substance because of course we know that in a high enough dose, it can cause all kinds of problems. But we also know that if you have a cup of coffee, your risk is very small even though you've not altered the hazard of that caffeine. But should you consume a whole bottle of caffeine pills, well, you'll be saying goodbye to the world. So it's very important to realize that the uh, story about glyphosate, the reason that is listed as a possible human carcinogen, because there have been some studies in animals and in cell culture where with exposures that are way, way, way beyond what any human would be exposed to, they have uncovered some problems. That's why it is a hazard. But given the fact that the average person's exposure to glyphosate is absolutely minimal because we can detect glyphosate in the urine, and there have been all kinds of studies done on testing for glyphosate in, in human urine and all across North America. And we know that the levels are way below the levels referred to as the ADI, the acceptable daily intake, uh, which has been determined by toxicologists looking at the epidemiological data, animal data, et cetera. So although I, I don't think that there's any risk with the small dose of glyphosate to which we were exposed, uh, the um, anti-GMO people, of course, are still out there uh, talking about the fact that glyphosate is a, ranked as a possible human carcinogen by the International Agency for Research on Cancer. Well, that is it for today. We have run out of time. Once more, let me wish our Jewish listeners a Happy New Year, a Happy Rosh Hashanah, Hope that the next year will be sweet. Take your apples, dip them into honey, and uh, have a happy new year. We'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Josh Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. And cadmium and calcium and chromium and curium.
0: There is sulfur, californium, and fermium, berkelium, and also mendelevium, einsteinium, nobelium, and, and argon, kryptonium, radon, zinc, and, and rhodium, and chlorine, carbon, cobalt, copper, tungsten, tin, and sodium. These are the only ones of which the news has come to Harvard. And there may be many others, but they haven't been discovered.